and we're in week three of our series on the book of Philippians uh, called An Alternative Society, where we're looking at and reminding ourselves of Paul's vision for the church, and particularly his vision for the church as it was found in a very important time of history, the, the early church, a church, particularly the church in Philippi, that was struggling under the persecution around it. That their belief in Jesus was coming into conflict and tension with the cultures and the norms of their society. That Jesus and Caesar were finding themselves clashing. And Paul writes this incredible letter, as we know it, Philippians, to a church of 30 or so people meeting in a house and saying to them, you hold in your hands, gathered together, a fresh new vision for life. And in this letter, he's passionate to help the church remind the church that they are the hands and feet, the character and the life of Christ in society. He doesn't want them to be buckled under the pressure of persecution. He doesn't want them to succumb to the growing pressures and divisions that were in reality happening amongst them within the church. Instead, he wants them to recapture God's heart for the kingdom of God and for showing Jesus to society. And I can't think of a better book in a better time for us to look as we think about what it is to be church in Hong Kong in this hour. What does it mean for us to live in this time to hold forth the gospel, to shine like stars in the universe? In week one, we, we talked about the citizenship that Paul speaks of to the church in Philippi, their citizenship in heaven. And he says, when it comes down to it, you are not citizens of Rome. You're not citizens of Italy. You're not citizens under ultimately the authority of Caesar. You're citizens of heaven. And therefore, there is a character, a structure on which how we are to live. And, and Paul says, as we looked in the first week, that we are to administer our public affairs, administer how we live, the ways in which we live in a way that is worthy of our citizenship in heaven, that we are to operate together with that in mind. In week two, we looked at prayer. Because Paul's idea is, if we're citizens of heaven, if ultimately we administer the values of the kingdom on earth, prayer is such a central part to that. And we saw last week that Paul wasn't calling them to be this alternative society to pray in their usual ways. No, there was a new way to pray. And Paul says, it's not this laundry list of all the stuff that I need in my life where our prayers become so self-centered. Instead, he says, pray for one another. Like make it your habit and your culture in this alternative society to believe the best for each other, to thank God for one another, even when you don't like each other, to thank God for one another, even when you're divided amongst each other, to believe God's blessings should come on all of you so that you can partner in the gospel because there's work to do. And what kind of world or what kind of thing are we saying about Jesus to the world if we're divided and disunified ourselves? And he's saying, here's how we can do that. We view each other, not on the brokenness of our humanity in this moment, but we view each other with a broader and bigger scale of the future that will happen when Christ comes back and present each one of us pure and blameless before him. And if Christ has begun a good work in you, he will work through and carry it on all the way to completion. So pray for that good work to happen in each other. Are you okay? Yeah, great vision that Paul has for the church. Today, I want to turn to the topic of leadership. 
And I can't think of a more important time in history for us to be thinking about what it means for us to actually lead true and well, to lead as God would have us to lead. Now, I want to preface everything I'm saying here by the reality that some of you in this room, as soon as I mention the idea of leadership, immediately you've begun to think about somebody else. You've maybe begun to think of your boss in your workplace or the person who on their business card, it says leader, the one that has the authority and power. And you're immediately beginning to think of everybody else apart from yourself. Here's the first thing you need to know. When Scripture speaks about leadership within this church, this alternative society, it's talking about a picture where All of us are seen as ones who have been gifted to be able to show the world what Jesus looks like. In other words, in Scripture, leadership is never just defined to one or two people in corridors of power or with defined levels of leadership. No, the gospel is for all. And if the gospel is for all, every single one of us has a unique way of bringing an expression of that gospel. You yourself are a leader. If you're in this room or watching online right now and you're a Christian, God has saved you. He's reconciled you with God. He's placed his spirit in you. He's given you gifts and talents and he's left you here on earth for a purpose, for a reason. Because you get to, in the image of God, express something of the nature of Christ, of the character of Christ in your particular sphere of influence. Remember, that's a word we use a lot here at the Vine. If you've been coming to this church for a while, you would have heard me say so many times, you have a sphere of influence. Go to your sphere of influence. We pray for your sphere of influence, right? Leadership is essentially influence. It is the ability to bring influence on another person or a group of people in order that you might accomplish together a shared goal or vision. That's a simple, clear definition of leadership. That every single one of us has this sphere of influence in our lives. And really to be a Christian is to bring something of Christ and his influence into those spheres around us. Where together we might believe that we can work forward, have influence in order to show the world something of Christ Jesus. Are are you with me so far? So do not sit there thinking that this message is for the person sitting next to you. Or it's for your boss at work or the person who has the business card or the resume. This is for you, for you are a leader in the kingdom of God. Here's the second thing. We have an issue. Because we have a crisis of leadership in the world right now. I mean, the world right now is suffering under a crisis of leadership. Now, of course, there are good examples of leaders and leadership in every culture and in every society. But I don't know about you, but I've been struggling myself to see great, dynamic, good models of leadership around us in this time. In fact, it seems like everywhere we look right now that there's a breakdown in leadership. The Pandora Papers that were released this week is just another reminder to us. 12 million documents outlining some of the terrible ways in which key leaders in this world are leading with self-interest in mind. And we seem to have this structure in our society where basically modern leadership is in a crisis of trust and of abuse of power and of integrity. 
These three things, trust of our leadership, the abuse of power within modern leadership, and integrity, not being able to trust the word of people, not being, believing that they're actually going to stand up and, and move forward in what they've actually said. These are areas that leadership is crumbling around us. Forbes magazine recently did a survey of everybody that attended a World Economic Forum. And in this, they asked them, is there a crisis of leadership in the world right now? 85% of the people that attended this forum, which was a lot of people, all said yes. These are some of the key leaders in the world, some of the key economic leaders, some of the world's governing leaders. They all agreed, 85% of them, that there's a crisis in leadership. And out of this survey, Forbes were able to produce an article where they outlined five key traits of what they called toxic leadership. Five key traits. I want to highlight these for you. Here's the first one. Ego vanity, and arrogance. That toxic leaders are people that struggle with ego, vanity, and arrogance. These are people that put themselves up in leadership as the experts in everything that they do. Therefore, they are not in a position to learn, not in a position to grow. In fact, they think that their leadership is protected by pretending, in most cases, to be the expert at everything. These kinds of toxic leaders have very low empathy, very low compassion, and instead are much more aggressive in their communication, and mostly it's critical to lower someone down in order to cover for what they lack. Ego, vanity, and arrogance. The second trait was this, a deficiency of self-awareness. <laughs> that, that these kinds of leaders have the inability to actually recognize the flaws that are in them, or if they know those flaws, they, they don't want to deal with them. They're blind to them. They ignore them, even when those flaws are having a big impact on the people around them. The third thing is achievement at all costs. These kinds of leaders put achievement beyond everything else. And the, the irony is that so often with these leaders, the very people that had worked so hard, voted them in, worked on their behalf to get them into a place of power, the people there then run those people over in order to achieve what it is that they need to achieve. They burn bridges all around them because the number one thing is not the people that got them there. The number one thing is them retaining power. Are you with me? Here's the fourth trait that they saw, power over competency. Power over competency. It doesn't matter whether I'm not actually good in my job. It doesn't matter whether I have the character to hold me in my platform. It doesn't matter if I actually have the skill set to administer this nation, this country, this business, this church well. What matters is my power and holding onto that power for as long as I can. And so I will do whatever I want to be able to reestablish and reinforce my power, even if it means pulling you down, because that will hide the reality that I actually don't have the competency to lead in the way that I need to lead. The fifth and final one was self-interest beyond the idea of the greater good. Self-interest instead of looking out for the greater good. And what they found in this survey was that toxic leaders led this way most predominantly in times of pressure, in times of hardship and difficulty. They would actually look after themselves more than the greater good of those that they were supposed to be serving. These, my friends, are the five traits of the kind of crisis that I think leadership is in today. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would be open to say that we see this kind of leadership in the church as much as we might see this kind of leadership in society, economics, and in the corridors of governments. It may well be that perhaps even you, as being a part of this church here, have come under these kinds of leadership traits from time to time. 
And before we think that this is a modern problem, we just need to open the pages a little bit of history and realize that this is not just going to quickly and easily go away, that we could look at this kind of list and go like, ah, I don't want to be that kind of leader. I'm not really that kind of leader. Am I that kind of leader? You might be suffering with that self-awareness thing, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but like, we look at this and we kind of think, we're not going to be these kinds of leaders. Surely this is just a passing phase. We're all going to get through it. When the reality is, it's almost been 2,000 years of recorded history where this kind of leadership has been the predominant type of leadership that's been seen in the world. You just need to ask Paul what he saw in leadership around him in the first century. And he would look at this list and go, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one too. Because the Greco-Roman culture, Greco-Roman leadership was very similar to this. There was authoritarian dictatorship. There was uh, this kind of sort of ego-driven centrality to holding on to power, so much so that the Caesars demanded and forced worship of themselves in order to retain that kind of power. There was a culture in the Greek or Roman culture where it was all about praising and boasting, and leaders would boast about themselves, what they were good at, all of the things that they were, in order to deflect the reality that they weren't actually good at some things. There was a culture here of the powerful gaining more power at the suppression of the poor and the minorities around them. This was Greco-Roman cultural leadership. And Paul is looking at this. He's looking at his church and he's realizing that everybody in that church has been saved out of that kind of culture. And he's noticing in the divisions that are amongst them that that culture is alive too in the church. And Paul believes that there has to be another way. Because if we're going to be an alternative society, there has to be another way to lead. Paul himself encountered this new way. In chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul writes of all of the things that he, if he wanted to boast, could boast about. Oh, oh, if anybody had confidence in the flesh, oh, it's me. I mean, I was born like this. I was part of this tribe. I was raised under this teacher. I went to Harvard. I went to Cambridge. I went to Oxford. I got my PhD. I'm awesome. Like if anybody had power and privilege, a leader amongst his own people, one that was feared by many people under him, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, it was Paul. And that was his thinking. That was his leadership style. And then he's on his way to Damascus. Jesus shows up and everything changes. And he suddenly realizes that there's a new way to lead. That power is immediately redefined. That the power that he thought he had, the power that he thought he needed for leadership is completely removed. That power is redefined in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul begins to understand that power is not about exerting influence from outside. Power is all about what God's doing from within. Like power is the thing that God is doing by his spirit to change and transform us from the inside. Because if you want to change a culture and a society and a world, you change its people. And Paul begins to look at Jesus and talks to the apostles about the life of Jesus. And he realizes that Jesus came to model a new way of leadership. Paul hears crazy ideas like this from Jesus. That the last will be first and the first will be last. That the greatest amongst you needs to be the servant of all. That it is the meek that will inherit the earth. That there is no more male or female or Gentile or Jew, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul begins to pull the threads together of this kind of leadership, and he's beginning to say there is a new way. And he's looking at the church in Philippi, and he's saying, if you're truly going to be an alternative society, it's time for you to begin to lead differently. 
So I want to turn to this vision that Paul has for leadership this morning and open this up for us as a challenge to us to think differently ourselves about leadership in our own lives. Everybody okay? You right online? I can see the cameras nodding. Great. Let me read this to you from Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in my chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is this, that whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, you know what? I rejoice. Yes, I'm going to continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation, my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be put ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, I I don't know what to choose. I just don't know. I'm torn between the two. You know, I desire on the one side to be depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for me to remain in the body for you. Convinced of this, I will therefore remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and for your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul tells them in this passage, he reminds them of where he's at. He starts out in verse 12. He says, there's a palace guard around me. There are, I'm in chains for Christ Jesus. He's really clear that his situation is tough. Now, now, a couple of things you need to understand about being in prison in the first century. Prison in the first century wasn't where you went to after you had been judged and the sentence had been given to you. Prison was where you went whilst you were waiting for the judgment and waiting for the sentencing. And no one would ever get sentenced to time in prison. They would either get sentenced to execution or they would get sentenced to like a fine and to be set free. Those were the extremes. No one ever went to jail for their sentence. They went to jail to wait for the sentence. Does that make sense to you? So here's Paul and he's in a difficult situation. He's waiting to find out if he's going to actually be sentenced to death. He's finding out. He's waiting. This is why later on in verses 22 and 23, he's writing these words. He's saying, I might die. Like, like he has this reflection around life and death. Like, is this where I'm at? Am I going to die in the future? Am I going to live? There's benefits of both. One, if I go to Christ, I'll get to have joy with him. If I don't die, I'll get to come back. And so he's, he's struggling with the reality that the sentence may come that will you know, force him to either into life and death. This is a tough situation for him. And I want you to see something that's really important here. In the middle of this tough situation, look at the language that he uses. Encouraged, courageously and fearlessly, goodwill, love, Christ is preached. I rejoice. I'll continue to rejoice. My deliverance, fruitful labor, joy in the faith, overflow. 
Look at these words. These are not words of a panicked leader. These are not words of someone who thinks that he's suffering under the oppression of a system and he's trying to fight that system. He's trying to get kind of condolences from all the people around. No, this is Paul writing and saying it's not actually about my situation that truly matters. What actually matters here is what's happening with the gospel. Paul never writes to the church and says, man, the food sucks in prison. Like somebody cry with me for a moment. He never writes to the church and says, send me some blankets, Philippi, because it's really cold at night. Nowhere in the letter. Instead, he writes to them. He tells them he's in prison. And he has such joy in his heart because he points beyond what is happening just around him to the reality of what is happening kind of in his ministry. He starts to say, like, this is what's happening with the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, he's saying, it's not about me. It's not about what's actually happening to me. What's more important is what is taking place for the gospel. Paul is subverting worldly leadership here and walking in the opposite spirit. This is his attitude for leadership. It's this, that what happens in us and through us is way more important than what happens to us. Come on, church. What happens in us and through us is way more important than what actually is happening to us. Paul is like, look at what's happening to me. I'm in chains. I'm in prison. I don't know whether I'm going to live or die. They may pass a sentence where I'm executed. It doesn't matter. Do you want to know what really matters? Jesus is being preached. Do you want to know what really matters? People are coming to Christ. The gospel is advancing. It's crazy to me that even in prison, the gospel is so happening. In fact, I'm in chains. Look at verse 14. He says, I'm in chains. And because of those chains, the brothers and sisters are preaching more courageously, more fearlessly. He's like, this is awesome. Are you seeing what he's doing? See, in, in, in worldly toxic leadership, what, what happens in toxic leadership is leaders shine the light on themselves and their circumstances in order to secure power and authority. But gospel leaders shine intentionally the light away from themselves. Paul's like, it's not about what's going on for me. What's more important is what the Spirit of God is doing in and through this situation. Look at how the gospel is growing. Look at what's taking place around me by the gospel. This is amazing. I rejoice. I'm encouraged. I'm in love. This is great. I don't know about you, but if I was in Paul's situation, man, I'd be asking you for blankets. Are you with me? Like, like I would be looking for sympathy. I'd be trying to retain my power, if you will, by having people feel sorry for my situation. And Paul's subverting that whole thing, the ego, the arrogance, the, the manipulation of others because of circumstance. And he's saying the thing that really matters is whether the gospel is preached or not. Now, Paul takes this now to another level. It's not just about his circumstance and his situation that he's trying to subvert and shine a light away from. He also then has some things to say about his haters. We all have haters, by the way. You're a leader. Remember how I said at the start of the message, you're a leader? That means you're going to have to struggle with some haters. You're going to have to struggle with some people that will disagree with you. One of, the, one of the struggles and the trials, but also the important things of leadership is that there'll be people around you that will question what you do. Over the last eight years that I've been senior pastor here, one of the hardest things I've had to get used to is the fact that people don't always agree with me, that they disagree with me. Sometimes they strongly disagree with me and they let me know that. 
Now, one of the skills of leadership is to be able to do what I call chew the meat and spit out the bones, right? To listen effectively to the complaints that come about you or about your organization, to understand those things. And sometimes they're legitimate and they're true and you should respond to them. So there is that way that we are to humble ourselves under that. But then there's also a lot of stuff that comes our way that isn't true, that isn't right, that is designed to just pull you down, that actually hurts because it's personal and things are said and it's not easy. And Paul moves on in verses 15 and 17 to talk about this. He says it this way. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. He's talking about two groups of people. One group that were preaching Jesus with the right heart, the right motive in goodwill, and he thinks that's great. But he then points out this other group of people who are trying to stir up trouble against him, his haters, if you will. And he says these people are preaching the gospel out of envy, out of rivalry, and out of selfish ambition. Now, scholars agree that what Paul's speaking about here is a group of unbelievers that were trying to stir up trouble for Paul before his sentencing takes place. Remember I told you, and this is why this is important, that the sentencing is going to come. So here's a group of unbelievers that are wanting Paul to be executed. And in order to sway the judge, sway the magistrate, what these people are doing is they're spreading the, the word about what Paul was preaching on the streets. So they were going into the corridors of power before Paul sentencing, and they were going, do you know what this Paul was actually saying on the streets of our city? He, he was saying this. He was saying that there is a, a God that's come to earth. He was saying that a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth is actually the Messiah. This Paul was saying that this person was put to death by us in our regime, but three days later, he was raised from the dead. This Paul is claiming that this raised Jewish rabbi from Nazareth is the son of God. He's saying that we should worship this one rather than Caesar. He's claiming that this is king and that if we follow him, all of our lives will be right. This is what he's trying to say. They think they're trying to stir up trouble. Paul looks at it and he goes, here's the crazy irony. They're preaching the gospel. Even though they have envy and rivalry and selfish ambition, even though they're trying to actually sentence me to death, the crazy thing is they're actually sharing the gospel. So whether out of goodwill or out of this rivalry, the gospel is still being preached. It's like Paul is saying this. He understands that the power of the gospel is not in the person, it's in the message. And he's saying as long as that message is going forth, then it doesn't matter what actually happens, whether to me or even the person who's saying it, the power is in the message itself. Isn't it ironic that even in my chains, my haters are furthering the gospel? Now, we, we look at Paul this way, and we suddenly begin to put him on a pedestal. Man, Paul was amazing. I mean, how could this guy have such a radical viewpoint in prison with all the stuff that was happening to him? Death coming to him, potentially. He can still look at the people that hate him and slander him, and he can look at them and say these words, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens to me. What matters is what happens to the gospel and the spreading of Jesus. And we look at Paul like that and we think, we could never be like that. We could never be him. He's so awesome. He's so amazing. He never put a foot wrong. This guy is like on a pedestal. It's like, ah, Paul. Like the Holy Spirit just shines on him all the time. Do you, do you have that? I, I have that view of Paul a lot. 
So have a look at what he says in verse 19 and 20. Is this helping people still? No. Great. Thank you. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. I eagerly expect and hope that in no way I will be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Notice this. He says to them, through your prayers. Paul humbles himself. He subverts worldly leadership. And he doesn't put himself up as this ego guy who knows everything and is the expert of everything. He says, no, I survived because of your prayers. Like it's through your prayers that this takes place. And not just your prayers, but also through the help of the Holy Spirit. I could not do this without your prayers or without the work of the Holy Spirit in me. I am dependent on both of those things. This is Paul bringing himself down to his people and saying, I'm not perfect. I'm not great. I'm not all these things. I realize that actually as your leader amongst you, I need your support as much as you think you need mine. I need your prayers. Oh, I need the Holy Spirit to help me because if the Holy Spirit is not here, I will suffer. And then he says this. I love this. He goes, I really hope that I have sufficient courage to do the work that I've been called to do. Isn't that beautiful? I really hope I have sufficient courage. When was the last time you heard a world leader go, you know, guys, I really hope I have sufficient courage to lead well this country because I've got some fear inside of me. Paul's like, man, I'm I'm afraid. I might die. I'm wrestling with that. And that's a reality for me. But I hope that through your prayers and the work of the Holy Spirit, when the time is right, I will find sufficient courage in me. I don't know if I will. There's a fear there. And I'm just putting myself vulnerably before you. But I hope that sufficient courage is there. Oh, that we would learn to lead openly, brokenly, before the people that we're leading. So that as one body, we could cheer each other on. No arrogance, no ego. Would you pray for me? Because you know what? I make mistakes. And I really hope that there's sufficient courage in me when I'm called to stand up for my faith for the gospel. Because I'm not sure if there is. Can we do that together? This is Paul at work for his people. So let me pull all the threads of Paul's incredible model of leadership together for us in one incredible PowerPoint slide. Are you ready? You might want to get your phones out and take a photo of this one because it's good. Here we go. Let me show you. Toxic leadership by gospel leadership. Where we saw that toxic leadership is this, that first of all, it's ego, vanity, and arrogance. What Paul teaches in this passage is that we are to subvert the ego, be honest and vulnerable before our people. Where toxic leadership is a deficiency of self-awareness in this passage, Paul shows us an acute self-awareness about himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. Where toxic leadership is achievement at all costs, no matter who we run over, he talks about sacrificial servant heart for others. Where toxic leadership is power over common. See, what we see Paul do in this passage is shift power from human hands to divine agency. When toxic leadership is about self-interest over the greater good, Paul stands and embraces suffering for the greater good. I'm willing to go through this in order that you might go forward in the gospel. Could you imagine a society flourishing under this kind of leadership? Well, you should, because it's called the church. The church should be like this, because guess who our leader is? It's the suffering, sacrificial, servant-hearted, ego-deflating, incredibly honest, self-aware, and beautiful leader called Jesus Christ. 
And so as we see this and we begin to think about what gospel leadership truly might mean for Hong Kong, for the vine, for your place and sphere of influence, let me challenge you off the back of this with a couple of ways that I think practically you might be able to lead in the week ahead. Deal with your ego. Be courageous in your vulnerability. Put people over profit. Help people who will not have the ability to help you back. Look intentionally for ways to subvert your own power in order to provide a platform from those that don't have power. Speak the gospel fearlessly. Love your haters. Rejoice in the work of the gospel. Shine your light away from yourself. Be willing to actually embrace suffering. Encourage everyone around you because you can have rejoicing in the reality that it is far greater what God is doing in you and through you than what is happening to you. That, my friends, is a new way to lead. Can we stand together? Let me pray for you. Father, we stand together as a church in this moment now, both online as people are watching this in their own spheres of influence around the world, and here in this room as we all recognize the spheres of influence that are in and upon us. And Father, we come to you as not the experts with gospel leadership, but those very much in need of your mercy. Father, I believe that all of us in this room, when we look at the list of toxic and gospel, can find ourselves on both sides of that equation. We recognize in our own brokenness that so often we're the ones that actually perpetuate that toxic leadership, whether it's in our families, relationships we might have, workplaces that we're embedded into. And the first thing we do, Lord, is we come graciously to you and ask you to forgive us for ways in which we've led in ways that are not your gospel, not your truth. Father, I want to pray for people in this room that have considerable positions of power and authority. I want to pray particularly for people in this room that have considerable leadership, mantle, and responsibility. Father, I pray that you would now come by your Holy Spirit and just gently love on them strengthen their hands for the work that you've called them to do. Lord, you've raised them into places of considerable authority. And yet we all understand the seduction that can come in those places of power. So Lord, we pray for those online in this room who carry with them considerable responsibilities. And we ask, Lord, that you would keep them tethered to your humility, your grace, your love. Lord, we pray for every single one of us because as we said earlier, we are all leaders for your gospel in our spheres of influence. Lord, I wanna pray for that sufficient courage to lead in a different way than what the world anticipates and expects. Lord, you called us to be an alternative society, yeast and dough. And Lord, I pray now by your spirit that you would empower people in this room to lead courageously, fearlessly for the gospel. And Father, we take this time in this moment to pray for the leaders over us. Father, we first of all pray for Kerry Lamb 
We pray for her administration in Hong Kong. Father, we ask that you would just bless her. We ask that your presence would be upon her, that your wisdom would be with her. We pray, Lord, that for her and her administration, that, Father, your spirit would be at work in the corridors of their power. That, Lord God, you would come by your spirit and, Lord, open up the ways of the gospel in the administration of our government. Lord, we pray for those who are of faith in the government, that they would see themselves as those that can lead forth your kingdom principles and values for our city in this time. Would you strengthen the hands of them? And we thank you for Carrie and her leadership. Lord, we pray for Beijing, recognizing the increasing power and authority that that has over us. We pray for Xi Jinping and for his leaders. We also know that you have placed many Christians in government. And we pray that they would be strengthened, that you would strengthen their hands for the work that you call them to do in a very difficult thing. Lord, we just pray for the leaders over us. Lord, we ask that we would go forth into our weeks with a gospel-centered heart. Father, help us to subvert our egos because they're ugly. Help us, Lord, to be aware of our flaws and be willing to admit them and deal with them. Help us not to put achievement as number one and in that running over the people that got us to the places that we're at. Help us, Lord, to subvert our power and to give it away particularly when we realize that we don't have competency in a particular area. Lord, would you help us to always put the greater good and the interest of others beyond ourselves as Paul has so beautifully modeled to us in this passage. Lord, would you work in and through us in greater ways than what is happening around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone says, amen. Let's continue to worship together.